Well, good morning. Good to see you. Go ahead and open up your Bible to Mark chapter 12. That's where we're going to be today, starting in verse 13. Uh, This morning, the words actually will not be on the screen because we want to just encourage you to open up a hard copy of the Bible or on your phone or whatever it might be so you can have it right in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be some on the seats in front of you on that little rack below the chair. So I encourage you to Open up your copy of God's Word now and join me in Mark chapter 12. Uh, We're continuing our series, Walking Through the Gospel of Mark, today. We've been doing it just a few verses at a time because in preaching, the goal is not for you to hear my great ideas or insights, but it's to hear the Word of God. And so we walk through it just a little bit at a time and together hope to hear what God has for us. You know that things are getting desperate when unlikely partners start teaming up, when people who are normally opposed to one another or at odds with one another come together to fight a common enemy for a common cause. My brother and I were uh, not so friendly growing up with one another. Right now we have a great relationship, but growing up we were brothers, and so we would bicker and fight and be at odds all the time, and it would drive our parents kind of crazy, but there were times where we would have these beautiful signs of unity, where we would come together against a common enemy, our parents. We would come together to fight against their tyranny in our home, to fight against injustice in our home. One of these such moments I remember quite vividly, my parents thought that we should no longer watch wrestling. (laughs) Do you remember the WWF or the WWE? Maybe it's still around today. I don't know. But I was in fifth grade. I think this was, I won't tell you what year, but I was in fifth grade and my brother was in seventh grade and we loved wrestling. Not, I mean, actually wrestling, but watching wrestling. We loved it. And you know, there's guys in goofy outfits and some gals too, and they'd run and and fight and do all kinds of goofy stuff. It was totally fake and staged and not real, but we loved it. But our parents were like, you know, it's a little, a little too violent for you guys. The language is not great in it, so we don't really want you watching it. And so my brother and I, normally opposed to one another in so many ways, we said, we got to do something. And so we're going to find a way to keep watching wrestling. And so we organized this viewing party for our whole family. We said, Mom and Dad, the reason you won't let us watch wrestling anymore is because you haven't ever really seen it for yourself. And so if you just sit down with us and watch it, you'll see that it's not as bad as you think. And so we set up this date and uh, this weekday evening, it was, I think it was like a Wednesday, it was on. So we sat down as a family and we watched it and it did not go well for my brother and I. But we were working together hard to justify everything that we saw, right? There was language, and we're like, no, mom and dad, they didn't say the really bad words. They were just saying a couple of the bad words, so that doesn't count. It's okay, or I know it looks a little violent, but it's really not usually this bad. It's not normally like this. And we were working together, trying to do everything we could, but it it didn't work. Uncommon partners coming together for a common cause. We see something actually pretty similar in Mark chapter 12, verse 13. It says this, later they, so they from last week, the religious leaders, chief priests, scribes, 
the leaders in Jerusalem, sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? We've seen so far that Jesus is causing quite a stir in Jerusalem. He has crowds following him. He has confrontation on nearly every page with these religious leaders that are threatened by him. And so those in power are sending this convoy to Jesus in verse 13 in order to trap him, it says. They want to catch him saying something that'll get him in trouble. But again, in verse 13, we look at who is joining forces here. And it's some unlikely people. Not only the scribes, the uh, teachers of the law, but now it says the Pharisees and the Herodians. That might not mean a lot to us now, but if we knew who these groups were, we would see that's very odd. See, the Pharisees were these uh, extremely conservative Jews, extremely tied to their Jewish identity. They were quite wary of the influence of Rome. And then you have the Herodians, which was a group that was quite loyal to King Herod and sought to advance the political power of, the, of Herod and his family. And so those two groups were opposite in many ways. The Herodians were not too troubled by budding up to Rome in some ways. And so these groups were at odds with one another in so many uh, religious disputes or political disputes of the day. And yet, here they are teaming up to bring down Jesus because he's a threat to them. You know, it's been said before that the gospel comforts the afflicted and it afflicts the comfortable. And it comforts the afflicted, and it afflicts the comfortable. Which means when we come to Jesus in humility, when we're lowly and humble and come to hear the gospel, we can truly receive it as good news because we know that we need it. But when we're comfortable and we want to hold on to our power and keep the status quo, and keep doing things how we've always been doing things, thank you very much, then the message of the gospel is going to afflict us. It's going to challenge us. It's going to threaten our way of life. And that's what we see going on for both the Pharisees and the Herodians. No matter who we are, if we're comfortable in trying to hold on to our power and our rights, then the gospel is going to afflict us. It's going to make us uncomfortable. And so you see, they come to him to trap him. And in verse 14, they throw out some empty words of flattery. Jesus, you're a man of integrity. You teach the way of God. You're awesome. And then they set the trap. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Again, to us, this question might not mean much. I mean, paying taxes to Caesar is not really a hot-button issue in our society. But for the Jews in the first century, it was. This was quite touchy. It was a loaded question. Because many devout Jews, like the Pharisees, resented the Romans. 
I mean, after all, the Jews were the people of God. Like, what do you mean there's this foreign nation, this foreign power, this non-Jewish empire that is going to rule over us, the people of God? They're going to tell us what to do, and we have to uh, be alleg- or claim our allegiance to Caesar and pay taxes. That's ridiculous. And so for many, they would see uh, paying taxes or uh, buddying up to Rome as a kind of litmus test issue. If you did that, then it showed that you were some kind of Jewish sellout, getting too close to Rome and supporting Caesar. You're a traitor. You're unfaithful to the God of Israel. And so Jesus, if you're going to go that route, then who are you to claim to be the Jewish Messiah? Can't be true. On the other hand, if he openly rejects paying this tax to Caesar and teaches others not to recognize the authority of Caesar and not to pay taxes, then he'll be painted as some kind of dangerous zealot. And they'll probably be arrested by Rome for treason, trying to stir up a rebellion against Caesar. And so that's not good either. And so the trap is set. Pay these taxes, Jesus, or not? What should we do? Either way, it's going to get him in trouble, either from his uh, religious fan base, who will think he's some kind of sellout, or from Rome, who will arrest him and uh, try him for treason. So the passage continues. Verse 15, Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And so they brought the coin, and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription Caesar's, they replied. Okay, so Jesus knows what they're trying to do. He says, I know you're trying to trap me. And so he asks them for a coin. Hey, give me, give me a coin. Toss them a coin. It's a denarius. It's about uh, one day's wage. It would be made of silver, most likely, and it would have the image of Caesar inscribed on it, like his, his head, kind of the way that our coins today have the, the, the profile of a leader from the past although this was a leader from the present. So he says, whose image is on this? They say, well, Caesar's image is on the coin. Verse 17, so then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. There's his answer. And it amazed the crowd, and it somehow sidestepped this trap that they were trying to catch him in. And so now we have to figure out what in the world he meant by this statement, and why in the world it matters for us today, in 2018, what Jesus had to say about paying taxes to Caesar in the first century. So here we go. First he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Again, he's just shown them the coin. It has Caesar's image on it. And so, therefore, it belongs to him. So you can give him the coin. You can pay the tax. But give to God what is God's. Caesar can have his coin. belongs to him. But what does God get? What bears God's image? What belongs to God? That's the question. See, Jesus' word choice here is quite deliberate. He asks about the image on the coin, 
the Greek word icon. That word shows up elsewhere in the Bible, quite famously actually in the Old Testament. When the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, the same word icon, the Greek word icon, was used in Genesis chapter 1 when talking about creation. If you remember the story from page 1 of the Bible, God creates everything that there is. He separates the light from the dark and the sea from the dry land, and he makes every plant and animal and every living thing. Then in verse 26 of chapter 1, says this, the pinnacle of his creation. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. ground. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So essential to the doctrine of creation and what we believe about human beings is this idea that men and women are made in the image of God. So what bears God's image? We do. This is so important. We're going we're gonna to spend a little bit of time here in, in Genesis just thinking through what this means. What does it mean to bear God's image? What does it mean that we are made in God's image? There's a bit of debate. Some people would say it has to do with something that we have. Human beings have a capacity to think and act and uh, practice philosophy and think about thinking. They have souls and they have reason and, and an intellect in such a way that makes them distinct from the rest of creation, right? Like dogs and ducks and trees don't have those same capacities. And so human beings are unique, and that's something that God has given them. Some would say, no, it's not as much a capacity that you have. It's more your relational nature. So God is a relational being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God has made human beings in his image, meaning we're relational. We can relate with God in a unique way and relate with one another in a way that other species and plants and dogs and ducks and trees don't. Other people would say, actually, no, it's not really either of those things. It actually has to do with what human beings do, what we do. It's more of a functional thing. And this actually has a lot of weight behind it because if you look at Genesis chapter 1, as it tells us we're made in the image of God, it then says what? And they will rule over the, the fish and the birds and the animals. They will have dominion over the earth. And so human beings have this responsibility to have dominion over the earth, to cultivate the earth, to help all of life flourish. Right? We're, kinda, we're, we're placed in the garden as gardeners to, to help life flourish in our world. That's a, a responsibility that wasn't given to bears or to squirrels, thankfully, or to dogs and ducks and trees. That's a uniquely human reality. And I think this is a little tricky because nowhere in Scripture does it tell us exactly what it means that we're made in the image of God. It tells us 
that we are made in the image of God, but it doesn't ever explain exactly, okay, and here's exactly what that means. And so we kind of have to piece it together from the various scriptures that mention it, especially Genesis 1, and say, okay, well, what does this mean? And I think that the best understanding of this is kind of a combination of the views that I've just shared. It's a combination of our abilities as human beings and our responsibilities. Okay, so we do have these capacities to think and reason and, and dream and, and think about thinking. We're self-aware in a way that nothing else in the world is. And those capacities are what allow us to fulfill this God-given responsibility to steward the resources of the earth, to help God's world become what he intended it to be. And so it's both our ability or abilities and our responsibility. But that then, of course, leads to a number of questions. Like, okay, so what are the implications of that, that we're made in God's image? What does that mean we should do about it or believe about that? Again, a couple things. First, notice, as we talked about, that human beings are distinct from the rest of creation. We're more like God than anything else in all of creation. And this is really important because there's a lot of conversation or debate today about Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and about creation and evolution, and how and when did God make everything, and did he use evolution, is that how it happened, or did it, was it like six literal days, and there are Christians on kind of different sides of the fence about that issue, and I'm not going to go there now fully, this conversation for another day, but I do want us to see that we might differ on exactly how we see God did things, but this is a, a hard line in the sand that all Christians ought to affirm, that human beings are distinct from everything else. Okay, So there's human beings, and then a hard line, and then everything else in creation. Okay, That's one of the non-negotiables of Genesis 1 and 2. There's human beings, hard line, everything else in creation. Because we're made in God's image in a way that trees and ducks and dogs and bears and squirrels are not. It's a unique glory that we have. Second, all of human life has dignity and value. All of human life has dignity and value. See, never in scripture do we see it talking about degrees of God's image, or some people are made in God's image more, and other people not so much, or it never talks about how some people don't have God's image, or some people lose that capacity at some point. No, all human beings bear the image of God, and therefore all human lives are sacred and valuable and worthy of honor and care and love and respect, no matter how big or small or, or old or young or or injured, or, or any other qualifier we might try to put on that, as Christians, we should believe that all human life has value and is worthy of preserving. And so we should push back against any kind of dehumanizing uh, action or, or thought or concept or, or dehumanizing language towards people. As Christians, we should stand against that. And it was this conviction, the value of human life, that, that caused the early Christians in the first century, to, to bring the sick 
into their home when people were diseased or the plagues would spread and people would kind of kick out their family members because they were worried about getting sick themselves or they would flee the cities because of it. It was the Christians who went out and brought those men and women into their homes and cared for them and did not abandon them at great risk to themselves because they believed that those lives, those people, bear the image of God. So they're worthy care and love. It was this conviction that in the first century caused Christians to run around when people were uh, tossing out their babies. They would give birth, and if the child was unwanted, mostly girls, that's how it would happen, they'd toss it out, and it was the Christians who would run around and adopt those children and bring them into their home because they said that child is an image bearer of God. Their life is sacred, and so we're going to protect them and care for them and love them. It was this conviction that led to that. All human beings are made in the image of God and worthy of love and respect and care. Third, humans have a unique call and responsibility to have dominion over God's world. It's a loaded sentence. (laughs) Human beings have a unique call and responsibility to have dominion over God's world. More on this in a minute. Okay, we'll come back to this, circle back. But <clears throat> this concept, we're made in God's image, is foundational to our understanding of human beings. So, back to Mark 12 then. We've got our little excursion. Let's come on back. What's the so what of it all? Why are we talking about this? What does this have to do with Mark chapter 12? <clears throat> in light of this, Jesus says in verse 17, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. So he's saying, Caesar's image is on the coin. He can have the stinking coin. Give him the coin. But God's image is on you. And so your whole life, your very self, bears God's image and belongs to him. And so give that to God. Give God everything that you have. So sure, be a good citizen. Respect the government. Pay your taxes, but know that your ultimate allegiance is to Jesus, not to Caesar. It's to the kingdom of God, not to your country. And it's really because of this that, again, people didn't know what to do with these early Christians. They're like, I don't, they they pay their taxes, and they're, they're good neighbors, and they're good citizens, but they claim their allegiance is to another king. And they won't worship Caesar, but they are, they're not leading some kind of military uprising or speaking out against the government, really. They just claim their allegiances to this other king, this, this Jesus. So what do we do with them? <clears throat> they're walking this line, and this is why his answer amazed people, I think. Because it wasn't full-on endorsement of Rome and Caesar, but it also wasn't military uprising against Rome. He was walking this fine line of give to Caesar what is Caesar's, be a good citizen, pay your taxes, be grateful for your country, but your ultimate allegiance is to Jesus, to God. And so we today have to be careful to walk this line as well and not to blend Christianity and country. Because it's tricky for some of us. Some of us think that the United States is God's chosen country, God's chosen nation. It's not. It's not. Or we let our hopes rise and fall with our political system, 
where at times we're drawn towards the, the blending of American nationalism with Jesus. And those things don't necessarily go together. So you have to be really careful. Yes, pay your taxes. Give Caesar the coin. Be a good citizen. Be grateful for the freedoms that we have. Of course, be grateful for your country. Of course, it's not wrong to be patriotic or to love our country. But know that your allegiance to Jesus needs to be greater than your allegiance to your country. We serve the king, not Caesar. And so where our country is out of step with the kingdom of God, we ought to say so and stand against it and honor Jesus. And it's because Jesus alone, he alone can give us life. He alone is a king worth following. Caesar and and all the other kings or idols that we might chase after will take what we have for their own good. Whereas Jesus gives away his very life for the good of his people. That's the gospel we celebrate, that we serve a king who gave everything away in love for us. What a king. Why would we not want to serve this king? Why would we not want to give our whole selves to this king and this kingdom and walk with the Lord? And so because of this, he tells us to give to God what is God's, all of your life, all your commitment, all your love. It's his. Your ultimate allegiance isn't to Caesar, but it's also not to anything else you might run after. It's tempting for us often to give ourselves to good things that aren't ultimate things. And so we give ourselves to, to careers or to hobbies and we, or to our family, and we let those things take the place of first in our heart rather than the Lord being first in our heart. Remember a friend of mine in Denver uh, used to be super into cycling. He was going to be a professional racer. And so he was training and practicing and giving himself fully to that endeavor. But then he literally crashed and burned and crashed and got burned. And he could not race any longer. And it was later that he looked back on those years of racing and saw that his ultimate allegiance wasn't really to Jesus. But the most important thing in his life was, was racing, was cycling. It took all of his passion, all of his effort, all of his attention and his energy, more so than anything else in his life. He saw that that was an idol. That was something that he set up. He was giving himself fully to that rather than giving himself fully to the Lord. Again, cycling is not a bad thing. Our jobs aren't bad things. We can give ourselves to them, but know that our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. And so this is an opportunity for us to look at our commitments, look at where our time goes, our priorities, and say, Lord, am I prioritizing you in my life and giving to you what belongs to you, which is my whole self, because I'm made in your image. This is also bigger, I want to say, than just church attendance. Should be said, sometimes we translate, give to God your whole self means show up at church more. And sometimes that's true. And some of us probably would need to hear that. But that's not all it means. That's not all it means at all. See, when a ruler was reigning in the ancient world, they would set up a a statue or put their image on a coin, and it would circulate throughout their empire. And wherever the coin or the statue was placed, it would uh, indicate that they were in power there. 
It was a sign of their presence, a sign of their authority, that they were the ones in charge. So think about it. If we bear God's image, that means wherever we go, out there in the world, we're bringing the presence of God. We're bringing the kingdom of God. We're representing God himself out in the world, in our jobs and in our families and in our uh, places of the hobbies that we enjoy. And so it extends far beyond the walls of the church, doesn't it? Our devotion to the Lord. And this gets back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, that as human beings who bear the image of God, we have a responsibility to represent him in the world and help cultivate the world to become what God intended it to be. Andy Crouch put it this way. He's a pastor and author. He said, like our first parents, we are to be creators and cultivators. Or to put it more poetically, we are artists and gardeners. The artist and the gardener both adopt a posture of purposeful work. They bring their creativity and effort to their calling. They are acting in the image of one who spoke a world into being and stooped down to form creatures from the dust. They are creaturely creators, tending and shaping the world that the original creator made. And so we as human beings have this responsibility to build families and build neighborhoods and build cities and businesses and make good food and clean things and bring order to God's world, to see our gifts and our creativity be used for the good of the world and to bless individual people. So the tasks and the projects that we put our effort and time towards, whether they're in the home or whether they're uh, earning a paycheck, building skyscrapers or cleaning bathrooms or designing websites, all matter to God. And see, sometimes we separate the, the sacred from the secular and we think, well, the sacred churchy stuff, well, God cares about that, but like the rest of my life, you know, the, the, my job and my work and my hobbies, well, God doesn't really care as much about that. That's not true at all. That, that division should not be there. We should actually see all of life belonging to God in all of our life, including our jobs, to be for the glory of God and contributing to the good of our world. Think about it. There are 168 hours in the week. One of them maybe goes to church. <laughs> Sometimes two. But think about it. Let's say it's just one. You come to service. 167 of your 168 hours are spent out there in your home or at your job or doing things. And so if we say that, oh, it's, it's the spiritual things that count, the Sunday morning thing that counts, and the rest of my life doesn't, then that's a whole lot of time that just gets wasted. But the reality is God wants to use all of those hours for his purposes. And again, by that, I don't mean just that you should fill all those hours with, with just Bible studies and evangelism. Those are good things, and we should do those things. But again, the, the actual work that we do, the things that we create and the food that we make and the ways that we serve, it all matters. Think about it this way. Uh, Martin Luther, great reformer, was once approached by a working man who wanted to know how he could serve the Lord. So he asked him, hey, how can I serve the Lord? And Martin Luther asked him, well, what is your work now? What do you do? He said, I'm a shoemaker. Much to the shoemaker's surprise, Luther then replied, then make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. 
that's not nearly spiritual enough. Make a good shoe, sell it at a fair price. He didn't tell him to make Christian shoes or to put little crosses on all the little shoestrings or to quit being a shoemaker and go join a monastery and become a monk. No, he said, as a Christian, go make really good shoes because God cares about quality shoes. (laughs) And those shoes will be a blessing to the world and to the people who wear them. And so see your work as contributing to God's desire to bring healing and fullness to our world. Serve him by doing your job and doing it well. This applies for all of our work. Some of those, some of our jobs, it's a little easier to make that connection and others, uh, it's harder to make that connection, but all of work contributes in some ways, ought to, to the good of society and the glory of God, unless you're a hired hitman or something, and that would be a line of work that maybe wouldn't fall in with this vision, but, but most other things will. Um, so let's consider that. I want to just encourage you. You bear God's image. So you're sent out into the world to be a, a cultivator of the good world that he has made, to be creative, to glorify him in your work and your effort beyond just the four walls of the church. And so we're going to transition now to a time of communion. Because we believe that if we are to be the people God has made us to be, if we are to be his image bearers and representatives in the world, then we need first to be reconciled to God. We first need to recognize our own failures, our own sin, how we have turned from that God and tried to do things our own way. And so when we come to the table... We recognize our need before God because we take the elements, his body, his blood, the bread, and the cup, and we remember his broken body, his shed blood for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. And so as we come to the table, again, we're celebrating what Jesus has done for us, died for our sins, restored us to God, given us new life his spirit in us, eternal life, that then allows us to go and be the people he's called us to be. And at the same time, as we come to this table, we are affirming that our allegiance is to Jesus, and not to Caesar or to any other king. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word and this call on our lives to give to you what is yours. And we realize that that means our whole lives, our whole selves, Lord. We're made in your image. We're made for you, to glorify you in all that we do, Lord. And so we thank you as we come to the table. We thank you for what you have done to save us and rescue us from sin and death, to give us new life, and then allow us to be the people you've called us to be. We celebrate you. Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.